0: Please stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read from Micah 7:18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Keeley. You may be seated. We've been reading through the Bible this year together, and we were reading through um, Isaiah, and I preached uh, some sermons from Isaiah for the last two or three weeks, and now we are moving on into the minor prophets. Uh, They're called minor because they're just smaller, uh, more concise, and you have one of the most minorist ones that we read this last week, which was Obadiah, and that's the shortest uh, book of the Bible in the Old Testament. So just one chapter and very short, and that's why they're called the Minor Prophets. And today I will look at this text from uh, Micah, and uh, it's a, a beautiful text. It's the closing last verses of Micah, and I will expound on those, but I'll also, in doing that, look through the Minor Prophets that we read this week. Uh, Hosea and Amos and uh, Jonah and kind of those minor prophets there, and look at some of those and comment a little bit along the way about them. Are you ready? I'm interested in some of the what the minor prophets have to say and what this text means? It's very hope-filled, so this looks uh, looks very good, doesn't it? To begin with. It's about God's steadfast love and compassion. And what we see throughout the Bible and what the prophets will continue to say is that what God is like. His Word is describing who He is. So what is God like? And two images that we have is God is like a judge. He is a good judge. He is a just judge. And he will carry out judgment. He will carry out his judgment. He will judge righteously and good. But you also see that God, as this judge, really desires, even more so than giving out that justice, what is deserved, is he wants to show mercy Mercy, unmerited, like you're not worthy of this, but I would like to judge and rule in in mercy. I would like to show you mercy. So there's those two things going on throughout all the Old Testaments, uh, through all of the, the judges. You see this circle of sin and God bringing judgment and, and, and bringing through Samson and all the judges for 400 years of history, and then we're now into this You know, hundreds of years of times of the minor prophets that they cover. And you're still seeing this. God's coming and he's bringing the day of the Lord. You hear that a lot in the minor prophets. He's bringing this day where he will judge the world concerning their sin. He will bring justice righteously. And yet he will save he will show mercy and bring salvation. This day of the Lord is this day of judgment, and yet it's it's good. It's good judgment somehow. It'll bring bring about salvation. And so you're looking at how this will, will, will end in, in the Old Testament. And it's not ever fully resolved, but you see these prophecies of how it will be resolved in the future. So Micah. Micah closes. With this verse where he says, Who is a God like you? Who is a God like our God? Ponder that this morning. Who is God? Who is he like? Who could you compare him to? No one, no one is the answer to that. He is unique in all of everything that there is. He's unique. He's rare. He's very rare. You know, maybe we would relate it to gold or something. You don't just walk out and, and see gold laying on the ground. You can pillage through rivers and rivers and tons and tons of water and blow out cliffs and sides, and you might find a couple of little pebbles. Gold is something very rare, maybe something like that, these imageries. And gold's very permanent. It's very lasting. God's like that. He's very unique. He's very lasting. Who is like our God? This question uh, asked here by by Micah and looking at God dealing with this judgment and this mercy uh, you know and and who who is he who is he like we we think of of his works we can kind of see what God is like through what he has done through all of creation but then how he works within his people in the Bible he works through his people his people are formed from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he forms his people and he's working through them and and they go down and they're very fruitful along the Nile of Egypt but they become enslaved and but they multiply there, and, and God leads them out. Who, who is there a God like like that that leads people out like that? We still talk about that. We still make movies about it. Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments and leading uh, Israel out. Who is like God like that? Exodus 9:14, in referring to the plagues, he says, "For this time, I will send all my plagues." On you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. I mean, there was none like, I mean, every time Pharaoh hardened his hearts, you know, the magicians could do things like him. They're gods, you know, and they could do things. They could match some of those things, put down serpents and staffs and do a few things for a while. But then there was none like God, was there? They, they couldn't replicate those, and this God just kept going. And, he, and, 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 and when Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he just continued to display how he was like no other. His deliverance, his, his uh, power, his might, his uniqueness, his rarity. And, and he was just staying with this promise that he had made. And he's just staying with it. And he's delivering in miraculous ways. In Psalms 86, 8, it says, There is none like you among the gods none among you, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. There's something very unique. Who is like God, Mike is saying here. He's he's saying, who is a God like you? There there is no one, the answer to that is, and and you can discover that for the rest of your life, and you can look back on the works and just marvel and dive into them. This week I've meditated and pondered and read and reread these minor prophets i've dug into them they're very difficult to understand they they leap over i think i was telling you a lot of times they see over mountaintops you know and the valleys might have hundreds or even thousands of years in between them and they just go boop 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 and they show you these little glimpses and you're like what's going on what's going on now what's what's happening here oh my gosh what was it you know and it's just like very difficult and you just dig and you meditate and you read and you study and and uh, compare and look, and it's just it can be a really interesting search. And when you get there, you you, you sometimes can just discover God. I was uh, clear up to yesterday was just mind boggled by Joel and Amos, and and just studying them and trying to you know figure those things out and and meditating on them. And, and there was this time where I came to the end of this text that we read this morning. It was in our reading. And just this clear kind of just came, just this calm, finally just came and said, yeah, this is the text right here, the end of Micah. And I just like, whew, you know, finally. It's like I've been studying all these minor prophets, just, you know, figuring them out what each prophecy means, the symbolism, the metaphors, the the time frames, the who they were prophesying to and when. And, and I arrived at this, and there was just this calm here. There was just this beauty At the end of Micah, who is a God like you? It was kind of summing up this justice of God, this judgment of God. They were repeating over and over the day of the Lord, all that it meant, what Joel said, and it was just coming together and saying all that it seemed like Micah was trying to wrap up in these last few verses. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? That's one of the first works Micah mentions. Who is a God like you? Here's his work. Who pardons iniquity. Pardon. Think of that. Pardon means to, to bear, to support, to be saddled with. God takes this personally, our iniquity, he, he, our, our twisted ways. Of Even when he gives us clearly what to do, we take it and twist it and turn it and make it fit like we kind of want it to. That iniquity. Iniquity, that wicked, that twisted, taking what is good and and, and and making it what is bad, and we just lose the true meaning of it to begin with. Worshiping other gods, becoming like those gods, um, you know, evil in our our uh, uh, you know idolatry and the worship of other gods and become like them. Sexually immoral. There's a lot of calling out of that. There's a lot of calling out of the treatment of the poor. It's wicked. It's iniquity. And who is a God like ours who will pardon this? who will pardon, Micah's saying, who will pardon iniquity, who will bear it up, who will support it for us, who will bear it for us, who will pardon it. Pardon, he will take it upon himself. Pardon, bear it. It's, it's not like, like we would think of a, of a presidential pardon. He don't do anything but write a thing and sign a thing. This is the, the, the meaning here is that of pardon in the Hebrew is that, that God will bear it. He will bear our iniquity. He will be saddled with it. He is dealing with it. He is working it out through history. This is the way he he pardons. Who is a God like you? God is the offended one. God is the slandered one. God is the one deserving our obedience and submission. But he is the one who's going to pardon us and take upon himself our iniquity so that he can be free to show us What he really wants to show us, which is his mercy. He's doing that. He's pardoning our iniquity. You love a God like this? You're going to wonder and marvel that this is a God who pardons iniquity, bears it for us, has a plan to deal with it, knew it before the foundation of the world. He wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve's rebellion. For the foundation of the world, God had a plan, and his plan was to show mercy to his people and pardon their iniquity. Powerful. Hosea paints this picture. Hosea's a type of prophet who God calls not just to be his spokesman and messenger, but he says, you're going to live out what I'm feeling. You're going to live out how I Feel My heart is, Hosea, you're going to live what I'm experiencing with my people. Don't want to be called to that type of prophet. I'll speak about it, but don't make me just walk in the muck of it all. Yeah, that was Hosea's. You might read it and weep. You might read halfway through it and say, this is too disgusting. I don't want to read anymore. It's, it's heart-wrenching. God's back and forth with his judgment and mercy. What is he going to do? But Hosea in this masterpiece, it's a picture of, of and revealing God's broken, loving heart for his wayward people. It's just beautiful. The canvas of Hosea's life reveals the salvation of the Lord for his unworthy people. The people are never deserving. So he tells Hosea, go marry this prostitute. Sound interesting? You guys going to read it? All right. It's got some strange stuff in there. Go marry this prostitute then have these children and give them really evil, wicked names. <sighs> well, that's great, Lord. I'm going to have children. And then I'm going to name them Jezreel. I might talk about some of that, what that name means. Name them no mercy. Not mercy like we're talking about. Name them not a me like mercy, but lo a me, no mercy. And then instead of naming them like my people, name them not low. What's this word in front of Not my people. Name them that, your kids. So when you're calling them out, you remember, no mercy, no, not my people. Call your children that. Want to be called like Hosea? Pretty, Pretty rough calling. This is the heart of God's Love for his people and hosea eleven eight says here 's god 's heart through all this through through Hosea, and then his wife still runs out on him, uh, you know with other men, he has to go by God and purchase her back, like you go and get her, purchase her back and bring her back, purchase her, buy her back, what she sold herself into and God hosea arrives at eleven Chapter 11, verse 8, God's heart is saying this. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? This is Hosea's favorite word for Israel, Ephraim. If you remember Ephraim, Ephraim was uh, Joseph's son who Jacob adopted into his family, made him one of the tribes. He says, you're not going to be my grandson. You're going to be my son. Joseph, I'm going to take Ephraim and Manasseh, make them my sons. And Joseph, you can have other kids, and they'll be yours. But these two are mine, Jacob says. In Genesis 48, he blesses them. Does this? Maybe we'll look at that a little bit more. But this is Hosea's favorite word for Israel, Ephraim. It's endearment. It's like you know, just having your great-grandchild, and they're so great. You just make them into being one of your sons, and they'll inherit a part of the land as they go in as one of the tribes. This is Ephraim. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. Here's God's heart. He's, 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 bring, he's calling this judgment. He's going to bring this judgment. They're forsaking him with these other gods, being like prostitutes, whoring themselves out to other gods. This is the language that Hosea uses. This is the imagery that God has his prophet live through. And he says, my heart recoils within me. Another version says, my heart churns within me. This is the heart of God for his people. And he says, my, my compassion grows warm and tender, even in the midst of his people being like that. He says, Hosea, go after her. This is how I go after my people. Purchase them back. I feel like that a lot of times. Heart's churning within me. I don't know what to do in situations. I don't know whether to go after or to let go and just pray and let God, you know, know. go after, pursue uh, Uh, wait for the prodigal to return and pray and and all these things and a a lot of us have those issues and a lot of us have situations with our kids for we're longing for them to return or a lot of us have just brokenness in the world that sin brings and uh, you can read Hosea and be become like Hosea and feel God's heart for his people just that I love you My compassion is so great towards you. My heart's churning, though. You see God going, I'm gonna judge. I'm gonna pour out my justice on your wickedness. And then he's a but I love you so much, I don't want to. You see, God just doesn't easily just go, zap, you did wrong. Nothing like that. You see this heart of God going, I don't, I love you, Ephraim. I remember. Remember when you were born? I remember when Jacob crossed his hand and put his hand on you. and You were fruitful. That's what the word means. You've multiplied. But now look at this wickedness. What do I do? God knows, but he's, you see his heart. His heart doesn't just make cold, calculating decisions. And he lets Hosea know it and feel it. And then in Hosea 14, as he gets to the end, he says, I will heal their apostasy. This is his heart. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. This is the end, what God, this is the song we sing. Our sins are many, but His mercy is more. I kind of missed Mike and Scarlett this morning and the little girls and everything. Mike up here singing that <laughs> this morning. I could just see him up here playing guitar and singing that. He did it really good. Our sins are many. His mercies are so much more. That's what he wants: our sin, our iniquity, that deserving of God's just and rightful wrath, His anger towards sin. It's a just punishment for guilty people, and yet He is saying, "My mercy is more. My mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them." I love that our God is like no other God, who pardons iniquity; He bears it Himself. And he pardons it. This is his heart. The next point Micah mentions is he will pass over transgression. When you transgress something, you transgress the law. He's clearly established it, and you clearly transgress it, you break it. He says he passes over. Does this mean? You know, what does this mean? Just blow it away, just so, oh, forget it? No. You know, to pass over means to not just go over, but go beyond. Not to overlook, but go out of your way to make a way for your people. He's passing over, making a way. This imagery is, is good in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 because Moses is going to go in and, 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 you know, he's leading the people. And, and Moses goes, I don't want to do it. And I don't want to know unless your glory is going to go with me. You're going to go with me. Your presence is going to go with me. And he says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'll pass by you and I'll cover you with my hand. I'll pass. I'll pass over you. I'll pass before you. I'll pass behind you. I will go before you and my glory will make a way. And he puts him in the rock and he passes before him. And Moses catches a glimpse of God. Passing by his glory. He just sees the tail end of kind of like a part of his glory. Because to see him would just, his holiness would just consume him. No man can see God and live. His holiness is righteous, like a consuming fire just burn up the, the wickedness. And even within Moses, the most, you know, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived, you know, the deliverer. He can't. And we sing songs about that, right? Rock of ages. Rock of ages cleft for me. Cleft me, let me hide myself in thee. That's from that, from that text. Let me hide myself in the cleft of the rock. Let me hide myself while you pass by. I want you to pass over my transgressions. Hide me in that rock. <laughs> the imagery is real. He passes over transgressions. We see these things. We see him pardoning and iniquity. And maybe images of Christ is popping up in you how he does this. How he forgives, how he pardons iniquity, how he meets justice, his just and right righteous wrath with mercy. Where does he meet that at? Picture the cross. Picture the day of the Lord when judgment comes down and darkness covers the earth on the cross when Jesus is on it. And he cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His answer is because I love the people that you will bear through your cross. Because I love them so much. Because we love them. Because we agreed with this in the foundation of the word to show our judgment and righteous mercy meeting together at the cross. That's the day of darkness. The day of darkness when supernaturally from noon to three o'clock darkness covered the face of the earth. God's judgment came down. And Jesus here, he forgives. He passes over transgression. He looks at Jesus and your faith in him and he says, I'll pass over over you, and I'll show you my glory even though you're unworthy. You're an unworthy people full of iniquity and transgressions. You've, you've transgressed way more than you can even think or imagine. You know, Pharisees thought they were pretty good. You know, Jesus comes in, and he doesn't lighten this. He doesn't lighten his commandments that they've transgressed. He doesn't say, oh yeah, you've never uh, slept with another woman. You've never committed adultery. You're right. He says, if you've even lusted after A woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. He goes deeper into the meaning of the law and he goes after their very hearts and he says, You're adulterers. He calls the Pharisees adulterers. That's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's calling them out and he's bringing the law down with a greater amount of righteousness. We're not murderers. We're not like that sect of Jews that are going out and stabbing people and killing them for whatever reasons they might say. Never taken a knife and stabbed and killed. Jesus says, "You're murderers. When you say to another one of your brothers, Raka, you fool, and in your heart you murder them. That's, that's strict, isn't it? That's strict. That's strict. That's the strictness of the law. Jesus is bringing clarity to the law. And he's saying, "You've transgressed it, and you need a God who will pass over." You need a God who will pass over your transgressions because you have transgressed the law. And then James, he says, if you've transgressed in one of the areas, you've broken all of them. That sounds bad, doesn't it? I thought I just, you know, didn't remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. I didn't know by doing that I broke all of them. Yeah, James said, that's the holy standard of God. You've broken it worse than you could imagine ever. And you know what? We have a God who's wanting to say, "I want to pass over. I want to go before you. I want to go behind you. I want to go beside you. I want to pass over. I want to cover you in in Christ. I want you to hide yourself in my Son, so that I can pass over your transgressions. Will you?" Pharisee's answer to that was no. I ain't that bad. And it's our response many times, either in ignorance or just not knowing. I don't need to repent. I'm okay. This love of God draws us into either wanting to humble ourselves before Him or just digging ourselves in in our own pride. This is the choices of the the prophets. Open Edom's eyes, Obadiah. Open Edom's eyes. This is a prophecy not with Israel and Judah. It's with their neighboring people of Edom, and they're up on these cliffs. They have the high country. They dwell. Even in where they dwell, it's like pride. They're looking down on Israel and Judah, you know, and, and Obadiah confronts them in their pride. Rastaf sing the song, open Edom's eyes, Obadiah. Open their eyes and see. And, 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 and we have God reaching out to their neighboring. You know the Edomites? You know how Jacob became Israel? And there's the Israelites and Ephraim and all those names for Israel. Edom is, is Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? That's, that's Esau. That's Jacob's brothers. Yeah. You know, Esau up there and all his descendants looking down. There were brothers at one time. And you're looking down. And, and when God's judgment does come and they're carried away, the northern tribes, by Assyria, and all that the prophets prophesy because they won't humble themselves, they're carried into captivity, then Edom kind of goes, hey, great, let's go raid their villages and take even more. Shows no mercy, shows no defense of them, no help to them. They look down in pride and go, oh, yeah, let's go take advantage of this situation, right? That's humanity, right? And they go in and raid and pillage and take more for themselves. And Obadiah says, you're going to pay for that. People just, you don't get away with things. You can't do that, Edom. You can't do that, Esau and all your descendants. You can't do that. God will hold you accountable. God is a just judge. You're not going to get away with it. And your pride, your prideful eyes looking down from your great dwellings and you're in, the, in a phase of prosperity and, and goodness, you're not going to get away with it. Repent, humble yourself, the call to humble. All these prophets are calling out. God's reaching out to other nations around. Repent, humble yourself, be careful how you act. In all situations, even when God is pouring out His judgment upon His people, be careful how you act towards them. Eat them. Don't act in pride. God will be against you too. And it, the, the judgment is harsh. Destroy you, Edom. I'll destroy you, Esau, and all your descendants. I'll wipe them out. Don't do it. I mean, the repentance, the, the justice, and the anger of God, you know, towards what they're doing is is very heartfelt. He's not just idly looking by and watching nations treat nations a certain way. And he knows the whole history of it. He's crying out for people to repent. And the next thing... That Micah says is to have compassion. He says, referring to this deep commitment, he says, he will again have compassion on us. Compassion is this, Micah, looking at this next way that God, it's like uh, God's bowels. It's, it's like a word meaning the womb. It's like from here, God has compassion on his people, and Micah is saying he will again have compassion on us. Now, they're, they're, they're being, and, and going to be soon after this, led into captivity, and Micah prophesies both to the northern kingdoms uh, the, the, the ten tribes that have separated off and they become Samaria and, uh, and all the history of that. They're, they're in about 722. These are good dates to kind of just remember. They're carried, 722 B.C., carried into captivity by Assyria. The minor prophets are prophesying this. Micah's prophesying this, but the Micah also prophesies about Judah, the southern kingdom, who will be taken captive by Babylon. That happens in the 500s, you know, 500 uh, B.C., uh, About 518, somewhere around there. I'm sorry about my dates there. Um, But those are two very important dates to remember. They're led into captivity. So so Micah is saying here that to, to God's compassion, well, he will once again, he will again have compassion on us, even though that harsh judgment will come. And he'll bring, and this is what Jonah has a problem with too, with Nineveh. Nineveh is Assyria coming in and judging his people. Like, why use those evil people? They're evil people. God's like, you're evil. And your people are evil. And I'm going to use an evil nation to judge you who are now just like them, another evil nation. And so this is what God is doing. And he's not doing it lightly. That's what you read when you meditate on the prophets. He's doing it with great bowels of compassion that he would love to show mercy. He's slow to anger. That means he's not quick to it. That means he doesn't just go snap. He waits years, years, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, generations after generations, pleading for repentance. Return to me. Through Joel, he says, rend your hearts and not just your garments. See, they would rip their garments when they were repenting. And Joel cries out, return to the Lord and, and, and rend not just your garments, rend your hearts. That's what I'm after. Return to me with all your heart. Repent in that kind of way. And the prophets are crying out for this. And when God does bring this justice, this compassion, this, this from his bowels, you know, it's, it's something he would much rather pour out his mercy if people would just humble themselves and return to him. And he waits and he waits and he watches the wickedness and evil deteriorate to the point to where he sends Assyria into judge and Babylon into judge and his judgment finally comes. And here's what God does, Micah says. He treads underfoot. That's the next thing he does with sin. He pardons it, iniquity. He passes over transgression. He he um, has compassion, and then it says he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Tread underfoot. I like that. This is a military talk. He will tread underfoot. This is what he'll do to your sins. Think of this in 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Do you know what this is, triumphal procession? This is an imagery that Paul's giving to the Corinthians that they would watch when Roman processions would happen and a a victor, a general, would come back and he would lead them in triumphal procession. procession triumphal procession so this general would come in they'd honor him. they lay out the red carpet and they and and they would drag all of the captives behind him and they would stink they'd been traveling they're prisoners dead bodies hanging in cages just everything like rome is powerful rome is great rome has defeated another enemy bring him in in this in this procession and Paul's taking that imagery of a military victory and, 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 and a fragrance because their actual smell would be bad. They would get flowers and do different things, and they'd put it to, so when they went by, you know, they didn't smell the stink of the, of the prisoners in their captivity, but they smelled fragrant smells while a general won, won the victory. And so he's using this imagery, Paul, and it fits in with what Mike is saying here. He will tread underfoot our iniquities. He will win. He will be this victor like this in in battle. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. You're back there in the fragrance of Christ and you're to spread that fragrance of His. Treading underfoot your iniquities. He forgave me Unworthy me, Bobby Barnett. Unworthy of me. Kid from no significant town in now, a no significant town in a no significant state. But God cares and loves. He doesn't care where you're from or who you are. He, he comes after you. And he wants to lead you in that triumphal victory. He wants to tread your iniquities under his feet like a military leader. He wants to come and take you from the captivity that sin has held you in, crush that captivity, and lead you into a captivity of his love. A new captivity, a new master. Come on, Bob Dylan fans. <laughs> you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve Somebody. And why not be led in triumphal procession with a God who comes after you with the love of His Son and the cross and following Him in triumphal victory and His fragrance because you're going to be led by some God, whether it's just the God of yourself and your own choosing, and they're going to lead you in a place that the prophets say are no good, a place where they end up being sexually immoral, a place where they end up in idolatry, a place where they end up in greed. Greed, a love of money. This is a big thing to the prophets, as big as all those other ones I mentioned to you. Greed, a love of money. Hosea named his first son Jezreel. Don't know anything about that name? The other two were no mercy and not my people. Jezreel, there's a lot of imagery there. Hosea doesn't explain it real fully, but there's some hints there. And if you go back to 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 21, I'll go with my memory and say it is. Naboth. He's this guy that has a a little vineyard next to an evil king. You know who that evil king is? Ahab. Ahab, more wicked than any other king. And he looks over on little Naboth. Doesn't have much, but this is the land that he has inherited from when they led into the promised land. Each person got their... Their plot of land, and Naboth has a little plot of land, and he takes care of it. He gardens. He works hard on it. He has this beautiful vineyard. And Ahab goes, I want it. He's the king, evil king. He's got Jezebel, his wife, who's helping him commit all kinds of atrocities. He is from Jezreel. He's a Jezreelite. You following me? Hosea names his son Jezreel. This is just one of the evil iniquities. There's a bunch of them in Jezreel. You can show a lot of things that it does, but this is just one I want to point out. He's going to tread underfoot our iniquities, and these iniquities are big. They're like like Ahab's. You know what Ahab does? He tries to purchase it. Hey, I'll purchase your land. Naboth is like, I have this beautiful garden. I inherited this. You know how long this history goes back to my family? Remember when we came in from the land? With Joshua, and he led us in, and we, got, we fought for our land and our territory. I got this from my father's, and it goes all the way back to there. For God forbid that I would give up my land for any price. This is a man who's righteous. He's holding on to what God's had, and he's made it beautiful, gorgeous. And you know what? When Jezebel finds out about it, because Ahab's all pointing around, I tried to barge this, and he wouldn't sell it to me. She gets false accusers to sit down with Naboth at a table and falsely accuse him. So horrible was the accusations by two people that she paid off. Here's what money can do. To falsely accuse Naboth that they took him out and stoned him for his crime. Blooded him right on the street. And then Jebzeel goes, go and get the land because he's dead now. And that's how you get things. Don't sit around and pout about it. You're the king. That's the way the world works. That's the way the prophets are calling out these injustices towards the poor. And It's harsh. It's every bit as harsh as all the other sins that are accompanied by following false gods of love of money. And Elijah calls Ahab out. And he comes and he says, Lord sent me. This is harsh, the judgment. Those dogs that licked up Naboth's blood in the street, that's what happened to Naboth. Dogs came and licked up his blood. You think that's over? The dogs are going to lick up your blood. That's God's justice, his holy and righteous wrath. And it's it goes on worse than that, what Elijah says to Ahab. And you think it's over, right? But what does Ahab do? 1 Kings 21, he actually repents to Elijah's harsh judgment of him. This This will blow your mind. And God actually tells Elijah, go back, because... Have you seen, he tells Elijah, how Ahab has humbled himself before me? This is what humility will do before God. It is mind-blowing. I'm telling you, it is mind-blowing. I'm like, stick with your judgment on this guy, God, because he don't deserve anything. Kill him and, and, and let the dogs lick up his blood like you said. I mean, that's how you feel in your heart. And yet God in his mercy, his mercy that is more, I know this is almost like, can you believe in a God? Is this is how your God-like? Because he tells Elijah, I'm not going to carry out the disaster that I told on him because he humbled himself before me. Look at him, Elijah. Look at how he humbled himself before me. Look at himself, how he brought himself low before me. If you'll respond to the word of the Lord, God will forgive your sins. Don't you feel like mine aren't as bad as Ahab right away? <laughs> mine aren't as bad as the Pharisees. You know, mine aren't as bad as I know this person. And God is just pouring out his wooing to us. And he's saying, I'll tread your iniquities underfoot like a military leader and commander. He will again have compassion on us. And he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We sing about that this morning too. About his mercy that throws our sins into the depths of the sea and remember, remembers them mo, no more. Whose, whose depths and whose shores cannot remember those sins. They'll be remembered no more. Teresa could remember the words for me. <laughs> She's a worshiper. But we were just singing it. Our sins are thrown into that sea without shores and without an end to its depth, unremembered, whose shores and depths are remembered no more. This is the love of God. This is where he meets and pardons iniquity, where he has compassion and he treads underfoot all of our sins and casts them into the sea. Why? Why? Because he remembers Jacob. He remembers Abraham. He remembers his promises that he made all those years ago. Don't you love a promise keeping God? Like when I think of his love for me, he's like, I made this promise to Abraham, and I said I was going to bless him, and I said through him I was going to bless all nations. And you know what? I'm going to do that. And he did it in Jesus. He brought a descendant from Israel, and he brought forth Jesus and all the world is blessed through Jesus. All the world is blessed through this seed, Galatians 3 says, who is Jesus, who is the Christ. He's brought it. He's brought forth his promise. Micah is, 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 is saying he's going to remember that promise, and he's going to remember the promise he made to Jacob. Two people, Abraham and Jacob. Are well, there's was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but here Micah just mentions Abraham and Jacob. They're, they're unique in the covenant that God made with him and the promises and the stories and the heartfelt like calling Abraham out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and just a nobody and said, I'm going to make a people out of you. And he actually does. And he actually brings forth the Christ, this long-awaited promise, and Jacob. And when he blessed Ephraim, he crossed his hands. This this made Joseph mad because he wanted the blessing to go to Manasseh, his oldest firstborn, but he crossed his hands. And he blessed more abundantly Ephraim to be fruitful. So Hosea is using this word, Ephraim, Ephraim, because he was blessed by Jacob specially as Joseph's son to be fruitful. And God did the same thing at the cross. You think about it. Jesus was his firstborn. Romans 8 says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might have made among him many brothers, brethren, many brothers and sisters that through him, the firstborn Jesus might come be this fruitful Ephraim. And how did he do it? He took his firstborn Jesus and he poured out his wrath on him. This is my firstborn. All the blessing should go, go to him. But it doesn't. Jesus bears our curse. He bears our sin. He bears our iniquity. He bears our transgressions. And he treads underfoot through the cross. He's there. And God puts all the curse of sin upon him as just and rightful judgment. He judges sin in the cross and the cross of his son. He puts it on him, darkness comes, and he turns, and you know what he does? He blesses you. He crosses his hand, he blesses you. He remembers that promise he made to Jacob, and he's still doing it today, carrying out, blessing you and Abraham, blessing you and Jacob. Would you celebrate with me communion? Get out your communion cups, because it's through the cross that he did all of this. No amount of gold or silver, no amount of anything in all of creation could do what God did in his steadfast love toward us. Only in his very only begotten Son could he do this miracle that we marvel at today, that we celebrate here today. We celebrate Jesus, whom he sent, his only begotten Son, his firstborn Son, in this form of the new creation, and in the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and gave thanks to the Father for it. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember you, Jesus, and your body. Let us partake together. In like manner, Jesus took the cup said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. Whew, that's a good word. That covers treading underfoot your sins, compassion from his bowels over and forgiving you, pardoning your iniquity, passing over your transgressions for the remission of sins, removing them, throwing them, hurling them into the sea, as far as the east is from the west. Let us partake of this cup together. And let us close and and worship and give praise to the true and living God and become like Him.